Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This food industry-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to help keep you up to date. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Food Podcast. I'm Sydney Perlmutter, Senior Food Industry Journalist and Webinar Moderator at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by special guest Pat McCullough. Now, Pat is the CEO of Produce Pay, and I'm here with Pat to talk about some of the 2024 predictions for the food industry for next year. Pat, thank you so much for being here. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sydney. All right. So can you start off by just telling me a bit about your career in the food industry up to this point, along with a bit of an overview of your current role? Absolutely. So interestingly, my father grew up on a farm in Iowa um, that actually harvested corn and soybeans and was in the cattle and and hog business as well. Uh, In a very similar path, he went to university, the first one of his kind, um, and went into business. And that's the story of our founder, Pablo Borquez, um, who started our company about nine years ago now. Um, I joined Pablo almost three years ago, came in as an advisor to Pablo. I had worked with um, the lead Series C investors, G2VP in my past. And we really started tag teaming the leadership where Pablo focused on the farms. I focused on trying to build out the back end of the business and frankly, connecting to the other side, which is ultimately retail grocers. Um, And then a little bit more than a year ago, Pablo was leaning out of the role. He really wanted to focus on calling on farms from an executive board director position. So he asked me to essentially swap jobs with him, uh, where I was working for him as an executive director. Uh, We inverted, and it's been super healthy. We have a great relationship we, we look to rid waste out of the perishable produce industry. That's the primary mission. At the same time, make sure we support farms that have, have had to carry the majority of the risk associated with weather, crop disease, global fluctuations in prices, et cetera. So we see that as our primary mission. So getting into a little bit of your you know, predictions for next year, how do you envision blocked, blockchain technology uh, transforming the supply chains for fresh produce, like you were mentioning, meat, dairy, and seafood? And um, if you have any examples or case studies, I'd love to hear them. You know, it's interesting. We're primarily in the perishable produce space, which is quite analog these days. I'll give you some examples. Um, the majority of our industry uses an ERP solution, which is developed well over a decade ago, it's called Famous, um, uh, and it doesn't even support API attachments. So like, if you think about the ability to extract data in the first place to feed blockchain solutions, we're struggling at, at that part. The, the perishable produce industry is super behind other food categories and other industries. So we view our role as primary, primarily a data uh, gatherer and a data a data organizer. So one of the things that we feel is important about what we're doing is we are reaching into order management, order shipment, um, fulfillment, quality evolution from you know planting through development in the field to harvest to shipment to ultimate you know sign off at retail grocers. So we're collecting that data for the first time. We don't know of um, anyone in our space that does this on a holistic way outside of their own verticals. Um, we're able to see across many 
um, perishable produce verticals because we are the capital that supports you know 60 categories if you think about the um, the breadth of fruits and vegetables you know from grapes to berries to cucumbers to tomatoes to peppers etc um, that's what we're up to right now so I think we're in the early stages is the the short answer and a lot of data accumulation has to happen first which hasn't happened so, I mean, just in terms of reducing food waste and, and attempting to do that, I guess it's, you're also, you know, sort of in the beginning stages of, of, of doing that. If you don't have all the data there, you don't have the systems in place yet. No, I think we're a little bit more mature there. And that's some good news. You know, there's great opportunities in both these areas that we're discussing, but in the, in the issue of food waste, if you really think about the first principles of the industry, you have fairly stable demand, meaning we eat about the same amount of salads on a Monday as a Thursday. We eat about the same amount of fruit throughout the year. Yes, there's exceptions, but for the most part, demand is stable. Supply is not. Supply does not match the global demand needs for perishable produce. And let me give you an example. If you just think about the grocery store in, in totality, you have Kellogg's cereal box. Every grocery store has that. You know, The only differentiation is pricing. Uh, when you think about the big sticky items that drive loyalty and switching, it's meat, poultry, seafood, and produce. Well, what do we know about harvesting, you know, a cow to create, you know, a beef supply? You can actually do that at varying times. So you can match, you know, the harvest, if you will, of the ground beef to the demand where you can't pick a blueberry bush at different points different days of the year. It, they're ripe or they're almost ripe and you know, you're know you starting the process. So we have the most mismatched supply and demand which drives incredible price volatility. Um, it was studied to be 117% last year across all food, cat, all perishable produce categories. That includes melons at 400%, tomatoes at 400%, um, grapes at 200%. And it's because there are um, surety of supply issues that are the primary buying criteria for big retail grocers. So we are working to advance capital into those supply shortage moments to ensure that we're helping the industry consolidate supply for the benefit of the United States, maybe at the expense of Europe and Asia, because some markets are truly that global. Um, in other cases, we're advancing capital to develop incremental supply. So we ensure those holes are being filled with new supply so that uh, supply and demand can be matched. We're working with a company called Four Star Fruit on a table grapes program where we are going direct from the farm through them into retail. So we're taking out the open market. We're taking out the speculative brokers and the arbitrage houses that are part of the problem with wildly uh, volatile price markets. So to that end, we're eliminating waste because of those direct connections. I think more importantly, we are asking our farms to invest labor in their fields to ensure they hit those tier one specs that big retail can move. When you get into the off, off tier one spec conditions, those end, generally end up in the open markets. A great deal of that food gets wasted. Um, and unfortunately in, in produce, 40% of the harvested fruits and vegetables uh, perish before they're consumed or processed. And then with this price volatility and the brokering and arbitrage in the middle, you have probably another 20% economic waste. So we view a total of 60% economic and physical waste happening in produce. And of course, that's enough to solve world hunger. So this is a big problem and a big issue. And of course, if you're harvesting um, 
product that ends up being wasted, you have to think about the impact on the environment, and cold storage until that, you know, perish moment. It's a, it's a pretty ugly story, but that's what we're keen on fixing. So you got into this a little bit with that partnership you were talking about, but can you describe some of the emerging um, sustainable agritech solutions that you think might be like a net positive for, um, you know, the environmental impact um, in business next year? Absolutely. I mean, we are supporting and asking our farms to invest in everything from regenerative farming to carbon offsets, carbon credits. We're looking at water restoration units in places like Peru, which have water challenges. Um, there's also human rights issues that we deal with as part of, you know, advancing capital into emerging markets. So we're very protective. We keep children out of the field. We keep indigenous people from being pushed off land. We protect natural habitats. Um, and we will reject financial partnerships due to those ESG matters on their own. We actually rejected 18 deals this year that we would have done on ESG uh, matters. Now, we don't like to fail a farm because there's an ESG matter. So what we're doing in the best cases is saying, okay, this is a rehabilitation program. Let's get that daycare investment at the farm. Let's raise the wages for the workers so they're not motivated to have their kids you know, help uh, in the field during harvest. And then we will monitor twice as frequently when we have a rehabilitation type of program going on. But the ESG and the impact side of what we do is a, a very big deal to us. We have investors that care deeply about this too. We have multiple Article 8 investors from Europe. We have the IFC and IDB from the World Bank invested in us. So we're holding ourselves to the highest IFC technical standards. Uh, now, you're talking a bit about some of those um, ethical problems, and I'm imagining that a lot of the rejections from those 18 uh, offers were due to ethical concerns. But what are some of the um, you know, challenges in implementing some of these things for next year or any you know, in the future? Monitoring. We'll be growing to from just under 100 to probably over 150 agronomists and um, let's say warehouse operators that will be in the field monitoring farming practices, monitoring quality, monitoring, um, you know, let's say sign-offs to ensure that the appropriate parties um, are fulfilling their, their agreements. Um, so it does still require some, you know, real people on the ground. You know, we, we can't take those people out with tech yet someday, hopefully. But um, at this point, it requires a fairly sizable investment and a very global footprint. So we're in 24 nations right now, growing to probably 40 to 50 next year, trying to be present in every single uh, global farming location that has any significance for supporting Asia, Europe, and the United States. And how do you foresee, if at all, uh, government policies and regulations influencing or supporting uh, things like this um, in the future? This is one of the best um, farms in California. They sell Walmart, they sell Costco and they have a credit provider walking away from them. We're looking at the credit thinking, wow, you know, I guess we'll have to step in and take all this, but it's it's almost a national security issue if you think about it. So there is a role here for government to protect the food supply and not let small matters like short-term working capital access, you know, upset and create insolvency in our food supply. But, you know, best I can tell right now, a lot of people are, um, worried about different things than what I'm talking about. For example, the California minimum wage has significantly hurt the farming community uh, and made it more difficult to make money and stay in existence. And we're losing a lot of farms to Mexico and Latin America. I frankly don't think that's good for our country, but 
that is definitely the course we're on. And we end up being in the middle of it because we sometimes are the last resort for capital, especially in more mature markets like the US and Europe. So when we're getting pulled in in bigger ways and needing to come up with much bigger capital um, allocations, it's definitely a curiosity to me that that need isn't being met by the primary banking sector. So how might consumer preferences and behaviors evolve next year in response to some industry changes, particularly regarding, um, you know, blockchain, farm to consumer initiatives and sustainable practices? You know, I, I see a couple of big trends that are interesting. The There is still a trend to premium fruit. Um, and I, blueberries is an excellent example. There's incredible differentiation now that blueberry supply has caught up to demand. Of course, all the antioxidant, the health benefits that have been discussed publicly are driving demand in a you know pretty interesting way over the last decade plus. Supply has caught up, but now we see that some of those varietals, some of that supply is quite different. You know, some of the sweetness, you know, in, in the different berries is quite different. So we see very a huge interest in premium products. And we do see pricing differentiate uh, differentiation in most categories for varietal differences. I'm not even talking about organic versus conventional. I'm talking about you know, a pristine grape as an example, or, a, you know, a cotton snap, or, um, you know, there's different varietals of blueberries where there's tremendous differentiation. So I think that's a trend that we have to watch and we have to recognize that all supply is an equal. So when we're trying to match supply and demand, it's not just a blueberry, it's the varietal, it's the time, it's the ripeness, it's the, you know, organic versus conventional, et cetera. Um, we see a lot of things happening with, um, supply and investment. So we do recognize that people have gotten uh, more globally oriented in their supply chain. There's good and bad there. Um, you know, we're bringing fruit right now from South America, given it's the, the winter months in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. So we're bringing in Peruvian and Chilean fruits and vegetables right now. That has to go on sea and go a long way. So there is a big carbon footprint associated with that. Most people don't think about that. They don't realize that when our growing season ends in the fall in the Northern Hemisphere, and this applies to Europe, which is a bigger produce market than the U.S. and Asia as well, that we're going to places like South Africa, Australia, you know, New Zealand, South America for our produce sources. Um, and there's a tremendous cost to that. Now, that also means that there is more potential supply, um, but there's a cost burden, of course, when you're moving things halfway around the world. So um, it's very interesting now, the global expansion of, of produce. And it feels like the U.S. consumer is definitely um, starting to be trained that I can hit a button on my phone and have something on my doorstep in 30 minutes. And obviously that challenges everybody's supply chain to an even further extent. Um, so having blockchain solutions and having the right level of automation to make those markets in real time link you know, that demand, you know, from the, the push of a, a button in the grocery store or on your phone to, you know, the supply chain and where that's coming from and then adjust for changes. You know, that's that's a new world for this industry that we're excited about, um, but it's still to come. Yeah, it's interesting, the, the point about, um, you know, just expecting kind of anything at any time. Uh, do you think that consumers have become a little bit jaded in terms of their expectations? And do you think that if they truly understood, you know, the the time, the carbon um, emissions and, um, you know, the cost involved in, in accessing some of these things that maybe their thoughts or their uh, consumption patterns or habits would change? 
That's a big question. <laughs> um, the, the thing I think about, this is kind of how I've rationalized it uh, through our experience at Produce Pay is if someone is willing to buy something, there's likely going to be someone in the world who seizes that business opportunity and determines, okay, I am going to grow grapes and blueberries halfway around the world to serve that market because, you know, blueberries aren't just a summer and fall, you know, uh, consumption trend anymore. Um, so if you accept that, then the job and the thing we've really focused on at Produce Pay is saying, okay, we're not going to prevent markets from being made, but let's make them more efficient. Let's make sure that that fruit is bought earlier, you know, prior to harvest, prior to planting in a perfect world with fixed pricing, with contractual obligations, and that we are matching expected demand, you know, months in advance versus at the last second. And that's a big problem in produce. Most of our market is effectively a spot market where there's only a fleeting PO and a verbal commitment at the last minute to supply. And if the daily price changes, you may see a farm do something different than they agreed to, or even a retail buyer or a marketer decide, I'm gonna go back to the market because the prices fell. Um, and that ends up creating quite a bit of mismatched supply, which then ends up being pushed into a market, potentially rebagged, repackaged, um, you know, rebranded, and God knows where you know that goes. So there is a real cost to um, not being organized and not having contracts in place early. And we are attempting to bring earlier, fixed price contracts, those, those are all new concepts for the majority of produce into the industry we serve. Um, and in a perfect world, we'll be able to move that to multi-year fixed pricing and volume commitments. And I know there's several you know, big retailers that do this in every category they buy for some reason. And I think we know the reason is price volatility and surety supply. That hasn't happened yet in produce. We hope it does. We're trying to consolidate supply for the benefit of the U.S. consumer and big retail so they can go to one place, get all their needs met and not be chasing spot prices all over the world, you know, every day. In your time at Produce Pay, um, have you had to uh, deal with the ramifications of any major um, climate incidents or, uh, you know, things that would affect the supply of uh, produce? Absolutely. Um, every season, there seems to be one. And you know, it's interesting. Is this the news media that makes us more aware or was the world always like this? It feels like there's more weather events and there's more supply impacts. But anytime you hear about rain, like interestingly, Hurricane Hillary, right? It came through California. Wasn't a big event from a human loss or a destruction perspective, but we did lose roughly a quarter of the U.S. table grape crops. They took on a concept called skin sag. And that's a huge disruption. We had retailers scrambling to find fruit um, in those months post uh, Hurricane Hillary. And then imagine the more dramatic ones, you know, imagine those hurricanes, those, you know, those uh, the droughts in the Midwest, you know, in the past year, all of these things impact supply negatively and they create a bigger imbalance between supply and demand. So we have two things that we manage when we think about that structural mismatch. The first one is what you're thinking about, which is weather events. Those are unplanned. Those, you know, those are going to probably on average swing supply 10 to 15% at all times. In the worst case, it's going to knock 30% of the Chilean blueberries out, you know, when they're underwater because of flooding in the past year. Um, but the other one is that structural one where the right things aren't planted at the right place for the right timing to serve those moments where, okay, the South American season ended, we're waiting a month for the Mexican season to come on, 
you know, and there's a void right there. So both of those two um, supply surety impacts are ones that we work actively. Um, but there's no question climate change and weather events is the big scary one because it's not a known structural hole in supply. You know, it's a fairly random one. Yeah. Now, um, in terms of um, other emerging technologies other than blockchain, how do you see um, other tech playing a role in the food industry um, next year and, and beyond? There's a lot of opportunity. Um, the big thing that we focused on with tech was trust and transparency. There was not the ability to see development of, let's say, a grape on a vine in a field. We have agronomists now that are using optics, Offer it's an app that we built into their smartphones, their smartphones, and they are objectively measuring the length, the diameter, the color, the skin condition through their phone while fruits on the vine prior to harvest, and then we're cracking skins and getting sugar reads, and then we are matching spec adherence prior to harvest. There was one example last year where a large retailer was working with us. They were out of grapes for four weeks. They were desperate to get some grapes in their stores. We showed them slightly off the length spec. The diameter's good, the color's good, the skin condition's good, the sugar's good. And they said, harvest, we'll waive the tier one spec for length, we'll take that product and we we're able to serve some demand that would have gone unfulfilled. So, you know, a lot of that quality and creating visibility that we can broadcast through our marketing partners and then ultimately to big retail, that is a, that's a big improvement from the past. And we were able to take rejection rates at uh, three of the largest four retailers in the U.S. from on average five to nine percent distribution center rejection rate to 0.5 percent because we were able to give objective transparency into you got a spec adherence here. This is good fruit. It's tier one. You don't have to worry. And that proved itself when it got through to the D.C.'s. That's really cool. Um, do you, so um, what other predictions did we not talk about or do you have any others that uh, we didn't get to for, for next year? You know, 2024, we think will continue to be a challenging year. We're starting off the year with, you know, supply shortages already in certain categories. So that never makes the, the new year easy. Um, we, we already know we didn't get enough rainfall to support Mexico. So yields are down 10% there. So I don't expect any relief from pricing. You know, we've definitely seen the inflation move on our produce. I don't see how that's going to get better given demand continues to slowly, you know, creep up with people, you know, going to plant-based diets with population growth um, and supply is not growing with it. So that's the big challenge for our industry, deploy capital, get more supply developed uh, and get ahead of that curve so we can provide some relief to U.S. and European consumers on a price basis. Uh, but again, we're most worried about supply. Surety supply is the number one buying criteria um, at retail. Number two is quality. Number three is price, just to put it in perspective. So that's, you know, if price was number one, we would likely have the supply we needed. But because surety supply trumps those other two dramatically, we've seen that in our survey work. We've seen that in every conversation we've had with retail. Um, we think that remains the big issue that we all need to manage in the best way possible. And can you talk about some highlights from this past year? Yeah, I mean, this past year was a success as the industry, as you think about the ability to access some produce, like blueberry growth and supply has been massive, you know, and frankly, the broader berry category, you know, we've seen Moroccan farms, we've seen Peruvian farms, 
really fill some big voids that existed in the past. Um, and we managed a lot of volatility in the year. There was as many weather incidents as I think we've ever seen as an industry in 2023. So a difficult year. Every region had something going on that was negative, and we were able to pull through and, and you know survive um, and get a lot more efficient uh, routes to market built. And that's the thing I think we're most proud of at Produce Pay. We know we have converted farms from selling to the local open markets to selling direct into U.S. retail. And we're talking about millions of cases of fruit, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of trade. We expect that to be billions next year. Um, but we know we're making a difference on that waste and greenhouse gas emission front when we eliminate those days of cold storage or those extra trips or extra labor to repack when it goes through those open markets. Yeah, you really, it sounds like your your company is really thinking about the things that most people don't think about and taking those sustainable, um, you know, issues into like serious consideration. So that's wonderful. Um, yeah, that's everything. That's all the questions I had for you. So um, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Sydney. I appreciate the time as well. All right. Well, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Food Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X Talks Food Industry Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.